This podcast is a production of Faith Living Church. If you like what you hear, join us for church sometime in our Plantsville, Connecticut location, Saturdays, 6 p.m., or Sundays, 9 and 11 a.m., or online anytime at faithlivingchurch.com. And so we're going to talk about an economic principle and then apply it to the gospel. Cool? By the end of this, you'll totally get it. You'll be like, oh, yeah, economics, Larry Kudlow, I can totally get him. You'll be watching CNBC, and it'll be amazing. All right, so... So uh, the, the, the principle I want to talk about is something called opportunity cost. Who here has ever heard that term, opportunity cost? A couple of people, a couple of people, opportunity cost, right? Yes, Kevin, the back, right? We talk about opportunity cost all the time in sales, right? So um, opportunity cost is simply this. Opportunity cost is the cost of doing something or buying something or whatever you're going to do. The cost of something is the cost of that thing plus the cost of what you could have done had you not done that thing, okay? So it's the cost of the thing plus the cost of what you could have done with that money or time or energy or resources had you not done that thing. So uh, two illustrations make it, make it uh, help to understand it, right? Um, one is uh, about two years ago, they opened up a uh, Chick-fil-A here in Southington, right? And the whole state went, ah, right? Okay, Chick-fil-A, right? And so as a thing, um, anybody who knew Chick-fil-A from traveling around the country, maybe being from a different part of the country, like, that's it! Chick-fil-A is coming! Jesus, chicken is going to be amazing! All right, so here they came, and they offered this thing where they said, all right, free chicken for, it was a year, right? Free chicken for a year to the first 100 customers, right? Okay, who, who actually tried to do that? Did anybody, try, you tried to do that? Okay, I knew there was a couple of people that, like, free Chick-fil-A! Right, okay. Um, and... And so was the chicken free? Did you guys get it? Did you? I think you got it. You got it. Free chicken. How was it, by the way? It was great. Okay. Here's the question. This is great. This is fantastic. I'm glad you're here. What, did he get free Chick-fil-A for a year? Who says yes? You did get it, right? Okay. Who says the chicken was free for him? Okay. The chicken wasn't free for him because how many days... Did you camp in the parking lot? It was a full, it was a full day, but I was there before and after. Before and after. So you were two days, right? Sort of, yeah. There were some people that you weren't first in line because there were some people there for like. First in line. I was like number 11. Number 11. You were number 11. You were there for a couple of days, right? A day. A day, just a day. Just a day in a parking lot. <laughs> Overnight, too, right? Yeah, a day and a night in a parking lot. It's not like we're like, unless we're not in the Bronx or something. It wasn't like you're going to get stabbed at night in Southington. But it was still weird. Just park, you know, Campton. So the cost, the cost of, of the chicken wasn't the cost of the chicken. It was the cost of chicken plus a day of being in the parking lot at Chick-fil-A, right? Damn, it was worth it. I, I didn't find out about it soon enough, so I couldn't be there, so I just have to pay for my own chicken, right? But does everybody understand that? That the cost, it wasn't free. It was, it was, the cost was actually the time that he spent. He could have been doing something else, but valued Chick-fil-A clearly, right? And a good decision, by the way. Um, all right, does that make sense? Let me give you another illustration. And this is a, this is a conversation that I have with uh, now have had and uh, have had with all of my kids except for Caitlin, and I'm having with um, even my youngest school-age daughter, um, high school-age daughter, Lindsay. So all of my kids have had this conversation. If you've had one of your children in the youth ministry, I have had a conversation similar to this with them. And so let's talk about going to college, 
okay, and the cost of college. So, so here's the thing. Let me use an illustration and use, say, uh, my daughter, uh, Joelle, just as an illustration because we're having this conversation right now, and she's a senior in high school, and everybody's like, what are you going to do for the rest of your life? You're 17 years old, and you have to declare what you're going to do for the rest of your life. They're like, yeah, right? Yeah. And then all of us adults are like, yes, and relax. You can change. It's all right. And everybody else on the teacher's like, you got to figure it out. Okay, all right. So Joelle's thinking about going to school for business, right? She wants to possibly go to school for business, maybe a couple of other things. She's thinking about that, right? Okay, so let's pretend that Joelle wants to go to school, uh, and she wants to go to school for, for her finance degree, and she wants to be in banking. Let's just, that's not what it is, but let's just pretend that that's, that's what it is. She wants to go to school for banking. Now, Joelle's a pretty smart kid. And she doesn't want to spend tons of money, but she wants to go to, say, UConn, right? UConn Business School, a nationally recognized business school, very good business school. You can get a good job coming out of UConn Business School, right? Okay. Uh, anybody know um, what the tuition, the in-state tuition is at, at UConn? Too much. Too much. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Too, too much. Anybody know what it is? Uh, well, that's, that's like if you stay there, right? But just the tuition, the in-state tuition... It's close, 14, 14 grand. It's like 30,000 for out of state, just the tuition, 14,000 in state for the tuition. All old people went, wow, yeah, that's a lot of money. Yeah, 14 grand a year just for the tuition. So let's say, let's say that, she, um, uh, that she's, she wants to stay home for the first two years, go to a local campus, maybe Waterbury, maybe Hartford. So she just got the tuition. We're not going to count books and gas and lattes, right? Okay, just, just, just tuition, okay? Okay. Um, just tuition, 14 grand. And then, of course, the last two years, she's got to go up to stores because stores in the middle of nowhere, and she's going to live there. And the cost will be about $22,000 to, to there, okay? So 14, 14, 22, 22 is going to cost her $72,000 to get her business degree from UConn, right? And everybody went, you can hear people going, ooh. Oh, there's a... A lot of people are going to take it longer than four years. This is yeah, they're doing other crazy things, right? And they're going. This is this is why we're going. Like, let's do welding, or or you know, machinist, or something like. Let's figure something because all of a sudden this starts to feel bad. So, but here's the thing: you come out of school with a business degree. Everybody think that's a good idea? To generally, oh, all of a sudden now, seventy-two grand. It's not a, not a good idea now, right? Okay. Here's the question. Does it cost her $72,000 to get her business degree from UConn? No, it doesn't. Because what she's done is she's essentially taken herself out of the job market for four years. Because it, she could have gotten out of high school and gotten a job. True? That is a thing. So that is the opportunity cost, is you've now taken yourself out of the job market for four years, spent $72,000, and in the meantime, you could have, you could have had four you could have, you could have had uh, worked for four years. So let's assume that instead of, uh, uh, instead of getting her degree in finance that she, and to work in the banking industry, she just went to work in the banking industry. You come right out of high school, maybe she knows somebody, something like that, down a TD bank, whatever, and she can get a job, what, out of high school, what are you going to get a job doing in a bank, like as a teller? Okay, let's say she, gets, she can get a job as a teller in the bank, right? Um, anybody know what the starting salary is for, for a teller in, uh, in, in the bank? In the bank? Yeah, somebody knows? About 14, 14 to $16 an hour. 
Right, $14 to $16 an hour. I looked it up and I, and I thought, well, maybe starting should only get $12.50, but that's fine. $14 to $16 an hour um, is about right, right? Um, and so I looked it up. I said, let's just call it $12.50 to lower our expectations because it makes for a nice round number of $500 a week, which uh, is $26,000 a year. So let's say in four years... She, she works there, and she does the right thing. You know, she, she doesn't lose anybody's money. She's nice and pleasant. She doesn't get a face tattoo, something like that, to keep her, you know, she can keep tellering, whatever that thing is, right? And she gets a you know, 3% raise, and a 3% raise, and a 3% raise. And maybe at the end of four years, if she's really good at being a teller, at the end of four years, she might be able to be like, what, like a lead teller? Like, a, I don't know if that's a thing, like the teller in charge, whatever that thing. So she might get a, a promotion at the end of four years, Okay. But if you take those four years at 26 grand a year plus 3%, a 3% additive because she's getting a raise, you know how much money she's made over those four years? $108,000. So now, in reality, walking out across, across, the, across the, uh, the stage at UConn to get your degree in business didn't just cost you the $72,000. Opportunity cost says it cost you the $72,000 that you spent plus $108,000 that you could have made. So now you're in the hole by about 180 grand. Now, the, right, okay, all of a sudden parents are going, ah, right, and kids are going, ah, right, okay, and Bernie Sanders is going, it should be, okay, whatever, all right, fine. Um, all right, fine, I'm not going to get political, all right, fine. Um, but the point is, the point is, is that still most people are going to say what? The, the rationale is, well, that may be true, Joe, but when she comes out of school with a degree in finance out of UConn and she's done a good job, she's going to get an apprenticeship six months, she's going to be the assistant branch manager, which if she'd never gotten, if she'd never gotten a degree, maybe the best she could do in her entire career is assistant branch manager. So her trajectory out of, at, with just a high school degree looks like this, and her trajectory with, with a degree looks like this, and so at some point in the future, she's going to make that up, Right? And that is generally true if you pick the right, if you do the right thing for school and you don't, you don't take that, that expense and make it insanely large and you do the right thing for your job and you don't, you know, this is why. I have, who here has ever heard the term starving accountant? No, you've heard starving artist and there's a reason for that. But you've never heard the term starving accountant, right? So it would be really bad if you went to a private school like, Columbia University and got your degree in fine art, right? And racked up $300,000 in debt for something that you can, now you're a barista at Starbucks and you're arting on the side, right? That's a bad economic decision if we're talking about that with our Christian life, if we're talking about that, about being occupied by God. There is only so much mind share for us. There's only so much life for us. There's only so much time in our day. And we have to make a choice. Am I going to spend it being occupied with God or am I going to spend it being occupied with stuff? Whatever that stuff is, relationships and things and gain. And look, everybody knows that you've got to eat and sleep and do that, right? That's, that's not the thing I'm talking about. I'm saying where is your mind? Where is your focus? Where is our life? And to the extent that we spend it not focused on God and not occupied with God, it means we're doing something else. And it means that we are sacrificing time with God. We have a choice. You're always making a choice because there's a limited amount of me. There's a limited amount of you. And so this is what we need to think about. Number one, there's two things we're going to talk about, right? So if we're going to be occupied with God, we need to be occupied by God. If we're going to spend our time being occupied with God, that means that we're actually inviting God to be 
occupy our life. And there are two things, and we're going to spend the rest of the time just talking about these two things. Number one, that when we think about that, that that creates conflict, just like it creates conflict in like, are you going to go to college or you're not going to go to college? You're going to go, to, you're going to go into debt to go to college or you're not going to go into debt to go to college? You're going to get this job? It creates a conflict because it creates a choice. So there is a battle over who will occupy our lives. That battle, inside that battle, there is a real enemy, and the battleground is right here between our ears. It is in, I say it's between our ears because I think about thinking, but it's in our soul, it's in our mind. The battleground is in our mind. The battleground is in our will. What are decisions and priorities are we making? And the battleground is in our emotions because, quite frankly, those things get tied up and fear gets in there and we make stupid decisions. So number one, there is a real enemy, and the battleground is in our soul. Number two um, is, th- is this, is that the focus, if we want to be occupied by God, the focus needs to be this, to be entirely captivated with God and his victory. That is occupation. If we're talking about being occupied by God and occupied with God, it means that we need to be entirely captivated with God and his victory, the victory that he has won in our life, the victory in our life. So, number one, the battleground is in our soul. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. Paul says, though we walk in the flesh, though we walk around here in this world, having worldly needs, all that kind of stuff, that we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. I'm going to stop right there, and I'm just going to make an observation here. That Paul does not, it is an assumed statement that there is a war. Right? He doesn't go, he doesn't go, though we walk in the flesh, if there's a war, if there's a challenge, if there's a conflict, it's not, he doesn't even say that. He goes, if, you know, for some people there's a war, but for others they're not. That's not what he says. He goes, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. He makes an assumed statement that there is a battle and you are in it. Whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not, life is war. And life is war not like this. Life is war because life is a battle for the primacy of who we are, for the priority of our life. Things are competing all the time for the priority and the primacy of our being. And let's take a second and pray for these guys. Father, we don't know um, uh, who needs help, but someone does. And so first, we thank you for... Uh, the people that are responding, we ask that you watch over and protect them. And, Lord, bring them close to you. And then whoever needs help, Lord, that you'd be with them as well. Just uh, your will be done in this situation. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, there is a battle for primacy in our life. Whether you want to admit it or not, there's a battle for primacy in our life. And I'll give you an illustration. I was watching a video the other day. I watched some of these weird videos online uh, to learn about self-defense and stuff like that. Strange thing, um, and it's weird because I'm actually going to be in the Cleveland airport, uh, not, to, not too distant future. But there's a guy, he's in the Cleveland airport, and he's going down the down escalator with his wife. Now, if you were going down the down escalator at the mall or something like that, would you, would you be like, okay, i got to be ready because there could be a battle anytime, right? Would you be doing that? No, because people would think you're weird. Right? You know, um, you don't walk around like this, right? And so this guy's going down the down escalator at the Cleveland airport. What he doesn't know is that there's a guy coming up the up escalator at the Cleveland airport, caught on film, and the guy has clearly, something's happened. He's had a psychotic break. Something's, I don't know if it's, in the video, they didn't know if it was drugs, you know, whatever he has, something happened, and he reaches over that gap between the 
down escalator and the up escalator, and he just punches the guy in the face. There wasn't an exchange. There wasn't a heated words. There wasn't anything like this. The guy's just riding the escalator, down the escalator with his wife, and a guy reaches across and punches him in the face. He wasn't ready for it. He wasn't thinking about it. He was probably just, you know, concentrating and holding the rail, like the sign says, right? And, and, and having, his, having his luggage not slip off the back. And this guy punches him in the face. Was he ready for it? Was he? No, of course not. Now, the thing is, is the rest of the video goes and shows when this, this guy who had the psychotic break comes up to the top onto this landing. And then the other guy comes stomping up the down escalator. If you've ever done that, you see he's stomping up the, the down escalator. So it takes him a minute because he's going to confront this guy that just punched him in the face. Now, here's the thing. The guy that comes up to the top, he's got a couple of seconds, and you can see it on, on the video. He drops his backpack. He takes off his jacket. And when this guy comes up, he starts coming at him like this. Hands are clenched. Arms are flailed. Chest is out. Chin is out. We call this a clue. Now, the guy's already punched you in the face, and now he's like this. And he's coming at you like this, foot's back. Actually, his right hand is foot's back, so his, his, his rear foot's loaded. This is every pre-attack indicator on the planet. My friend Scott Lund is a, a former police officer, right? You're like, this, this, this is a clue, right? This is, you know, this is, if he's a police officer, he's going this, or he's grabbing for his taser. He's doing something, right? Because this is what we call a clue, right? So he goes like this, and now this guy comes up the up escalator, and you know what he does? He should have never come up the up escalator, because he had no skills, he had no plan, he had no idea. He comes up and he walks straight up to the guy into what's called his reactionary gap, which means I can hit you faster than you can react. Walks right up to him and is pointing at his face like, there's no sound to it, but he's like, hey man, you hit me in the face. Like, what's, and he's like, what gives? You hit me in the face. And what do you think the guy did? He hit him again. He hit him again, he hit him twice and he knocked him over. The guy had to go to the hospital. He cracked him and cracked him, and then his wife finally makes it up the up escalator, and she's trying to defend her husband, and she's on the phone, like, I'm going to call the cops, and he slaps the phone out of her hand, and he throws her, and then the next thing you know is, is, is the police surrounding him with tasers pointed at him, and, uh, and they, they, they arrested the guy. The guy was, you know, something had happened. He was not having a good day, right, and, and something happened, and, but here's the point. That dude going down the down escalator, he was neither expecting it, nor was he prepared for the war that was about to come on him. And yet his whole day was ruined, probably several weeks. He got a concussion. Clearly looked like he broke his nose. I wasn't sure, but you know, I don't think your nose is supposed to be under your eye. And uh, so it looked like it was bad, right? Um, and, and knocked to the ground. His wife was assaulted. All that stuff. Neither of, them were, neither of them were expecting it, nor were they prepared for it. And yet there it was. And let me tell you something. Brothers and sisters, there it is. You and I are in a war. That's what Paul says. We do not war according to the flesh. There is a war. Like it or not, there is a war. And the war is not that. The war isn't very rarely, is anybody going to get it? That's not, that doesn't happen a lot, right? But there is a war constantly for primacy in our thinking, primacy in our time, primacy in who we are. He says, but the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not things that we pick up and hold. He said, but they're mighty for, in God. For what? 
pulling down strongholds, areas in our mind and in our thinking that are wrong and that's, that, quite frankly, Satan, our enemy, takes and uses against us about how we look at God and how we look at ourselves and what we think about how God thinks about us. And casting down what? Arguments, logical thinking processes, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Now, those first two things, strongholds and arguments, we understand. A high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. What does that mean? What it really means is, I don't know if you've ever done this, but you can take your thumb when it's a full moon out, and you can take your thumb, and you can put it up like this, and you can put it right over the moon and, and eclipse the moon. I don't know if anybody's ever done that, but in three weeks when the moon is full again, everybody will be doing that now. Like, wow, that really works. Okay. Am I under any illusion that my thumb is larger than the moon? No, but if I get this thing close enough and at the right angle, I can actually obscure the moon, right? What Satan does is he can't make you think differently about God, he can do this. He can put a false Jesus up close enough to you, and if he can get you to focus on that, you can't actually see who God is. That's a high thing that exalts. I will show you something about God. I'll give you enough truth and enough poison that to make you believe that this is what Jesus really is all about, but I'll twist it enough so there's not really him, and I'll make you believe that that's Jesus. That's what it is. We need to take that, understand what that is, and go, that's not God. That's God. Right? That's what this is. He says, he says, our battle is against arguments, strongholds, and false ideas of who God is. And bring what? Every thought. Battleground is between our ears. Every thought into the captivity to the obedience of Christ. Why? Because Satan, listen, Satan does not, very rarely, does Satan come looking like ISIS. True. Very rarely does Satan come with, a, you know, with, with horns and a pitchfork and scary things. It's very, very true. Most of the time, he comes in very subtle ways. Why don't you try this? Why don't you spend your life doing this thing over here? This is what's important. It feels good. It, it might even be respectable. It might be, uh, it might be socially uh, 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 applauded but it's not God. Spend your time doing this because if I can get you to spend your time doing this, it means that you're not spending your time being absorbed with God. I can give you the illusion of safety when in fact what I'm doing is, is exercising war on you. Um, I don't know if you've ever read the Screw Tape Letters. Great book. Uh, if you haven't read it, you should read it. It's written by C.S. Lewis. Um, and uh, uh, he's the same guy that wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, and it's a great book. And what the screw tape letters are is, uh, is actually screw tape is a demon. So it's written from the standpoint of a demon writing to his underling demon, um, who he calls his nephew. And that demon is in charge of this man who's just become a Christian. And so it's actually a book about spiritual warfare written from the viewpoint of a demon. So it takes a little while to get your head wrapped around it, but very insightful book. Um, and, and very cool, very well written. And so here's, here's a quote from there to, just to give us an illustration of what that looks like because he's not going to come at us and, and try to scare us into not serving God. He's going to come at us and try to lull us into not serving God. He says here, and this is a quote, he says, it does not matter how small the sins are provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one the gentle slope, soft underfoot, 
without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. I'm going to read that again. The safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Just play out the clock. Get, get him focused on other things, so much so that he's consumed by other things and can't be con occupied by God. Get him to run out the time. Time is on your side. He'll eventually die. It's the safest road to hell. Sometimes, sometimes, oftentimes, when we think we're safe, is an illusion of safety. Satan will give us an illusion of safety to keep us quiet when, in fact, he's planning war on our life. I've seen this in my own life, and I've seen it in, uh, I, some of you guys know I do self-defense stuff, right? I do some Krav Maga, and, uh, <clears throat> and so it's a martial art, and, uh, and we practice all the time, and, and we're training things all the time. I'm there a couple, three times a week, something like that. But I make sure I'm there every Wednesday night as, as often as possible, because Wednesday is sparring night, right? So Wednesday, there's no lesson, there's no nothing. We come in, we warm up, we put on our shin guards, we put on our, our, our gloves, we put on our mouth guard, and let's go, right? Now look before you think I'm a big tough guy, like we all have to go to work the next day. We're more, like, we're more like when you see that group of motorcycles riding by, most of the time those guys are like accountants and engineers, right? They're, they're out on the weekend, you know, doing all that stuff. They're not like the hell's angels, right? Okay, so, you know, we're not trying to kill each other, but we're trying to learn. We're trying to learn how to protect ourselves and, and how to do things and stuff like that. And so if you ever see me with like marks on my face or something like that, I'm still learning, okay? So that's what that is, right? But one of the things is, is, is I'm left-handed, and so, so I kind of stand a little bit right, for, right foot forward and left-handed. And so this becomes my strong hand. And a lot of times what I want to do, if we, if we were sparring, I want to punch you in the face. That's my goal. Doesn't sound awesome as a pastor? I, my goal is to punch you in the face. All right. My goal is to come bang and punch you in the face. Well, there's a problem with that. And the problem with that is usually people, when we're sparring, have their hands up. Right? They have their hands up and they're kind of like this. This guy's like this. And, and if I want to punch him in the face, I've got to... I've got to, this hand to deal with, right? And so what do I do about it? Do I just go, I'm going to smash it. Do I do that? No, I used to do that because I wasn't smart. And as I've learned, you know what I'll do? I will kick you. Yeah, I'll stand here like this and I'll go bang and I will kick you in your leg and up in your ribs because you've got your hands up here to protect your hand. And I will kick you here and I, and I will kick you until I see you start to move your hand. Because my entire goal was not to kick you. My entire goal is to punch you in the face. So what I want to do is I want to give you the illusion that, it, that he is never going to punch me up here, so it is safe to move my hand to protect down here, because that kind of hurt when he kicked me. And the entire time, what I'm doing is I'm waiting until I see that hand start to drop, and when I do, I have a punch that I've worked on that looks something like this, where I go like this, and I do this with my, with my, with my hips so it looks like I'm about to kick you, and I actually do this, and I step in, and I punch you in the face. And when I do that, I go, ha ha, it worked. <laughs> Keep your hands up, right? And so we learn, right? But the whole, my, we're just trying to do this to, to learn how to better protect ourselves and stuff like that. Satan is doing it to give you the illusion of safety in one area because what he's really doing is lulling you to try to hit you. We need to understand that. That's what he's talking about here. So just because life seems easy, just because it seems safe, safety is not actually always the best way to go. Matthew chapter 6 says, you cannot, no one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one 
and love the other, or else you will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve the things of God and the things of the world. That's what mammon is. Not just money, it's the things of this world. This is the original opportunity cost written in the Bible. Now listen how Jesus talks about this. He doesn't say, so, here, evil, if you, he doesn't say that. He says this, he says, listen, do not worry about your life. He goes, don't be afraid. Fear is the great motivator that gets us to focus on what we can see as opposed to the God. He says, therefore, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What Jesus is saying there is he's saying, look, it's not a question of the stuff. It's not a question of the things. It's a question of focus, because he says, God knows that you need these things, and I would expand that, the, the, these things to be, you know, he knows we live in the suburbs, and so we drive to work, and so we need a car. He knows, he knows if, if you're a young person or, or if you're a single person of, of any type and that you want to be married. He knows that you have a need for a husband or a wife or a spouse. He knows that these, these are things that you need. He knows that you're, for, God knows what a 401k is, guys. He, he knows what it's for. He, know, he, knows that, he knows that we have this, these, these things, right? He knows that, that these are things. It's people and relationships and the things of this world. He knows that you have the need of these things. What he's saying is that the Gentiles or non-Christians, what they do is they seek these things to the exclusion of God. He's saying seek first the kingdom of God and you'll, all these things will be added to you. The equation looks like this. You, if you try to do it on your own, you can get the things. You, focus on you and your stuff, equals things plus nothing. The problem is we weren't designed for things. We were designed for him. We were designed for a relationship with God. And so if I have, if, if I focus on the things, then I have me, I me plus the things equals something still seems missing. So I need to get what? Bigger things, more things, compare my things to your things, right? We know how this works, right? We see this all the time. I learned this even in my own neighborhood, that people compare our lawns. I didn't know lawn greenness was a thing, but it is. Christmas decorations is a thing, right? All this, you know, who has the bigger boat or the bigger car or the sticker that you put on the back of your, of your car to say where, what school your kids go to, right? All these are things, right? And so, so but me plus Things equals nothing because I don't have the thing that actually makes me tick, which is a relationship with God. God says, if you will seek me first, then you and you seek the kingdom, you will have me. 
And then because I'm the king of everything, you'll have all the things too. It's just a question of which priority do you put it in. Do you put, do you put the stuff before God or do you put God before the things? And he's saying if you put God before the things, God knows it, those things you need, but you'll have him plus the stuff. And there's a huge difference in that because we're made for him. So how does this work? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, a great a cloud of people who have done it, who have already successfully made God the prime thing in their life, who have already become occupied by God himself. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I want to talk about two things really important in this scripture here. First of all, who are we to look to? Jesus, who is the author, the beginner, and the ender. He is the beginner and the ender of our faith. He is both the, the beginner of our faith and the object of our faith. He is the fulfillment of what we're looking for. And he says, who for the joy that was set before him, he prioritized. What did Jesus prioritize? Jesus prioritized the joy that was set before him over the cross, over the shame. He said, the cross is something to be endured. The shame is something to be despised because the joy that is set before me is greater than that. When I do that equation, the gain is the joy that is set before me. What is the joy that is set before Jesus Christ at the cross? Was it the nails that held Jesus on the cross? No. What was it? It was joy that held Jesus on the cross. And what is the joy that was set before Jesus that, that kept him on the cross? It was you. It was me. It was your face that he saw on the cross. It was you personally, not humanity in general, you personally, by name, you, your story, your name, who you are on the inside, behind your eyeballs, that person right there is his joy. And he said, that's the gain. The sacrifice is nothing compared to that gain. He says, we need to do the same. And this is the reason why the, the author of, of, of Hebrews was inspired by the Holy Spirit to use this word. He says, looking unto Jesus. Now, I would think that that looking to Jesus means look at Jesus, right? But it really doesn't mean that. There's only one time in the entire New Testament that this particular word looking is used. Because it doesn't say look. It actually says stop looking at this in order to look at that. That's actually what it means. The only way that you can describe that word is to, you have, you, it's, it assumes you, I'm looking at something and it's saying, stop looking at that because there's something better to look at. Look over here. It means, hey, stop, look there. That's what that word means. So a different way of describing this would be, would be to say this. Let us run the race that is set before us. Hey, stop whatever you're looking at and look at something way better. Stop whatever you think is gain to you is not. That should be the sacrifice because let me show you a way better gain. That's what that word looking means. Turn away from something and to everything else. We need to be entirely captivated with God himself and with his victory that he has won in our life and for us. And if we will stop and just stop for a second and consider the greatness of who he is and the greatness of his victory that he has won, 
then all of this other thing doesn't seem like much of a sacrifice. Christianity becomes way less of a series of do's and don'ts and like living on a constant diet than it is, that was nothing compared to what I get over here. That's what I want to spend the, the last 15, 20 minutes talking about, is to be entirely captivated with God and his victory. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. I want you to listen to this and think about the words that you would underline personally in your own Bible as you read this. He says, therefore, having been justified, you talked about in chapter 4 about having faith in God. He says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have access by faith into his grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Wow, there's a lot packed into those first couple of sentences there. Listen to what he says. He says, therefore, having been justified by faith, Number one, when you put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you become justified. Justified, a good way to understand that word means just as if I'd never sinned. God doesn't declare us forgiven. Oh, I remember what you did, but I'm just going to forget it. I'll hold it off to the side. and I'll, Whenever I look at you, there might be a glare in my eye, but you can sit in the back of the church. That's not what he says. He doesn't mean that we're forgiven the way that you and I forgive one another. When God says you're forgiven, he says, I'm going to make you, I'm going to take the old you, and I'm going to cause it to cease to exist, and I'm going to put a new you in in place, and that new you has a key component, and it's called innocence. He declares us innocent of the actual act that we did so that we don't suffer the consequences for it. We are justified as if I had never sinned in the first place. He says, therefore, having innocence granted to us by faith, we now have peace with God. Not the peace of God, we have peace with God, which indicates, and we'll see this later, that when you don't have this with God, you're actually his enemy. But now there is no longer an an enmity between you and God. There's nothing standing between you. There's no awkwardness. You now have peace with the living God. And having peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and that grants us this next word, access. There isn't an open-door policy with God. There isn't a door. He's just open. There's no need to knock. He's just open. It's not like you feel bad like your friend who has a pool who says, hey, anytime you want to come over, you can come over and use our pool, but you never come over and use the pool because it feels weird. That kind of thing. It's not an invitation like that. It's not like your friend who has a truck either, right? That kind of thing. Okay? This is, this is, you have, this is, you have constant absolute, 24-7, unfettered, welcome access to God. We have access by faith into what? Into his grace in which we stand. It is grace. It is God's unmerited, undeserved favor. God's divine influence and power on our life that not just changes us, but empowers us to live a life and to stand in a world that is totally against us, in a place where we, where, we have, where we have lack and where everybody's fighting against us to be able to stand inside this grace. And then he says we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It gives us a confident expectation that we will at some point in the future have a place where we share in God's glory. Let me tell you what that means. That means that that in the ages to come, listen to this, this is scripture, it says in the ages to come, when God seeks to demonstrate his greatness, he will look at you. He will say, let me tell you, let me tell you about the time I did this in that person's life. Let me tell you about this in that person's life. Let me tell you about those things. He says says, our, our future is in him. 
And not only that, because our future is in him, because he's changed our life. What about our present? You go, yeah, but I'm going through a lot of rough stuff in my life. I know there's a lot of hard times in my life. I understand that. I, I, I totally understand that. And we could sit down and we could share stories and there's a lot of hard things going on all over the place. But that's not the point. He says we glory in our tribulations. In our hard times, we can glory in our tribulations. Why? Because I have access currently with God. And I know that he's with me in my present. Because if I'm occupied with God, my future is occupied with God. My present is occupied by God as well. He says, knowing that our tribulation, because he's here with me, it produces what? Perseverance. Perseverance produces character, character, hope, and hope does not disappoint. Why? Because God currently has been the love of God, the undeserved, unmerited, unfailing love of God has been poured out in my heart by the Holy Spirit who has given to us. What kind of gain is that? Justification, access, faith, even in his presence, even in tribulations, a hope of glory, even knowing that hard times that we're going through, God is saying, I might not have caused that pain, but I'm going to take that pain and use it. Use it to open up a doorway into your life to pour more of my love into you so that we can be more and more uh, possessed by him. Now, we need to contrast that. If we understand the, who he is, we need to understand his victory. We need to contrast that with what we were like before him. He says, because for when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man would one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us. God demonstrates his love towards us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For when we were enemies, if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Let me tell you that. That's all in the past tense. He says, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. I'm going to point it out in another scripture. I want to make sure we're clear about this. God wasn't nice to us because we were nice to him. God said, when you were my enemy, sin makes us an enemy of God. When you were my enemy, I still died in your place. When you were my enemy. My daughter and I were talking about this the other day. I don't know what, what got us on the conversation about this, but she was asking me about, you know, have you ever almost died or I'm like that, right? You remember that, Joel? And we were talking about that. And, and, and I said, you know what? I distinctly remember, especially before I became a Christian. I became a Christian when I was 19 years old. But I, we could tell the stories at some point. But I remember seven distinct events in my life before I was 19 years old where I should have died. Seven, seven distinct times, most of them having to do with cars. And there was a time where people, everyone fell out of a tree. That was not good. Um, but, uh, but, but there was mostly having to do with cars. One time, just... Seriously, there was a guy, we were in a car with him, and people, everybody had been drinking, and, uh, but he had been drinking, and uh, we were going out, um, we were going out 150 in Wallingford, between Wallingford and North Brantford. If you've ever been, Northford, if you've ever been out there, this kind of the drop down in the S's, and it was right there that he decided that he wanted to commit suicide. So we stomped on the gas, and, uh, and we had to wrestle the car away from him at almost 70 miles an hour going down this two-lane road, this twisty two-lane road. We had to wrestle the car away from him because suddenly we decided we didn't want to die. It wasn't that we cared so much if he wanted to die. We just didn't want to die with him. But he was trying to kill himself when there was a car full of people. Um, and he was trying to kill himself. He was trying to get going fast enough and was going to drive right off the road. And that was just one time. Here's what I think about, okay? There was a number of times where it was my fault. 
right? I put myself in those positions as well. But, but here's what I think about. God, when I was his enemy, when I was self-centered, when I cared more about what other people thought about me than what God thought about me, God saved my life while I was his enemy just to give me an opportunity to say yes to him at a later date. And I would suspect that if you thought back to your own life, if you lived long enough before you became a Christian, if you thought back into your own life, you'd remember some of the exact same things. Have we ever even gone back and asked God and told God, thank you for saving my life while I was still your enemy, you rescued me just to give me an opportunity later to say yes to you? God says, not only that, while you were my enemy, I died for you and actually purchased reconciliation back to me through Jesus. Listen to what it says in, in 1 John chapter 2. It says, he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for this whole world. He is the propitiation for the sins of the entire world. Every person who has ever existed, every person who ever will exist until Jesus comes back, he is the propitiation for those sins. That means a big word. What it means is that he is the substitutionary sacrifice. I should have been on the cross, and yet it was him. He is a substitutionary sacrifice that satisfies justice so there is no more wrath because that wrath was poured out upon someone else and not me so that I could be declared innocent. That's what that word means. A substitutionary sacrifice that, that satisfies the deserved wrath so that the other person can be declared innocent and go free. And the Bible says that he is the propitiation not for our sins but for the sins of the whole world. In my warped and twisted mind, I picture a giant uh, bank vault with safety deposit boxes on it, with salvation and innocence purchased and placed in individual boxes with every person's name on it. And all, so this is the good news. Forgiveness has already been made. We just have to say yes. And the moment you say yes, he comes in and he goes, let me show you this. Opens up the safety deposit box, pulls it out, says, here's your new life. Paid for you more than 2,000 years ago, just waiting for you to say yes. While we were his enemies, he built the bank, purchased it, placed it in the safety deposit boxes, waiting for you. While we were his enemies, while we were saying, oh, there's so many things are so more important to, to take up my mind and my, and, my, and my thoughts than taking up my thoughts with God. God's like, okay, I'll still do it anyways. What's of greater value? What sacrifice is there when this is the value? What gain is there? We're going to skip Philippians just for the sake of time because I want to focus on these last two scriptures. So, um, John chapter 1, verse 10. It says here, he was in the world, this is speaking of Jesus, he was in the world and the world was made through him. Jesus is the creator God. The, the, the world was made through him. He's the agent of creation. And he was in the world, and the world was made through him, but the world did not know him. He came to his own, those whom he created, right? He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, as many as received him, as many as put themselves in a position to receive this from God, he gave them what? He gave them the right to become children of God. 
Not the right to become forgiven, the right to become children of God. And if you're a child of God, you have all the benefits of of being a child of God, and you are a co-heir of Jesus Christ. This is what he's saying here. He says that if we will make the choice, if we will surrender our lives to God, he gives you the right to be called excuse me, to be called children of God, to those who believe in his name, who are born not of, the will of, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We can become born of God. So I'm asking, when it comes to the opportunity cost, and you take the gain, you take the sacrifice, and you divide it by the gain, what sacrifice is there to the gain? What is the opportunity cost? What are we missing out on if we don't make him our entire point of existence. Sometimes I think we forget about who he is now. We think that Jesus was, you know, we see all the children's books and we think Jesus is, you know, kind of a long-haired hipster from Brooklyn, but he's got like a, you know, like a robe on and a sash and, you know, and his, and his Jesus sandals. That's who we think Jesus is, right? But that's not who he is. That's who, what he, I don't even know if he looked like that when he was walking around, but, you know, that's not who he is. When I seek to remind myself of the greatness of God, I come to this passage of Scripture, the one I want to leave you with. And it's the last, the last um, time that Jesus is, is shown in Scripture on earth. And it's in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. This is, I, John, your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Wait, 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 wait a second. John was on the island of Patmos because he kept telling people about Jesus, and they tell him to stop, and they said, we're going to kill you. We're going to boil you. They boiled him in oil, and it didn't work. So they said, huh, that's kind of scary. Um, we're just going to put you on this island all by yourself, right? The Bible doesn't even say if they boiled him in oil and it burned him, but it just didn't kill him. It just didn't kill him. So, so here's a guy who has suffered a lot of tribulation, So when he talks about tribulation and patience for the kingdom of God, he knows about the sacrifice that he's made. But listen to what it says. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice. So he's looking this way, and he hears behind him a loud voice. Saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. I exist outside of time. I was at the beginning. I'm I'm already at the end. I am already there. What you see right in a book and send it to the seven churches that are that, which are in Asia, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. This is then I turn, right, that, that word. I stopped what I was looking at and turned, right? Hey, don't look there, look here. He says, and then I turned to see the voice that spoke to me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands was one like the Son of Man, meaning I recognized him as Jesus. He was like him, but he wasn't like him. He was like him, but the veil of his humanity was off so I could see who he really is. Clothed with a garment down to his feet, girded about his chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters." He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance, his face, was like the, sh- like the sun shining in its strength. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. I want to stop right there and think about this. When I turned away from what I was doing, and I turned to him, and I saw him for who I really was, 
he's so, what John is saying is he so filled every part of me. The experience was so occupying not just my thoughts and my vision and, my, and, the, and my, my, my senses, everything was so overwhelmed by his presence that my brain, the functions of general things like standing upright became not a priority anymore. Because he says I fell down at his feet like I was dead. Because I was so overwhelmed by that. Let's pray for these guys again. Father, I uh, don't know if it's the same situation or a different one, but Lord, we ask that you would be in the midst of them and uh, that your presence would go with them, both to the people who are, who are going to help and the people who need it. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so he says, I was so overwhelmed that I fell at his feet like a dead man. See, at some point, we have to ask ourselves, how consumed are we? John says, at that point, I was so consumed that even standing wasn't even a priority anymore. And listen to what God says. Listen to what Jesus says. He doesn't go, you should have been paying more attention. He doesn't do that, right? You should have been paying more attention to me. He doesn't do that. You broke six rules in the last... He doesn't, does he say that? He says, do not be afraid. He reached out and touched me and says, do not be afraid. And there, ladies and gentlemen, is the reason why we focus on the things and not him, is because we're afraid. We're afraid if I, if I stop focusing on the stuff, if I take my hands off the stuff and I focus on God, I'll lose the things. If I, if I, if I, if I don't go out and date every guy I see, I'll never get married. I hear it all the time. I hear it all the time. I'll never get married. Oh, you can't trust that God will bring a guy into your life? You can't trust that God will bring a, a woman into your life. You can't trust that God will take care of your kids. If I don't do this, what about my kids? What about this? What about this? Don't you think that Jesus loves your children more than you do? Right? But we're afraid. And because we're afraid, we focus on the stuff and not on him. And God calls us and we're like, yeah, okay, God, but I got to take all the care of all this stuff first. And God goes, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. He says, I saw him. He says, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. I was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And oh, by the way, he pulls out these things and he goes, I have the keys of hell and death. You want to talk about what you might be afraid of? Might be afraid of dying? Might be afraid of spending eternity in hell? I've got the keys to those things. That means I'm in charge. Wouldn't you rather spend time with me? He says, I was dead, and now I'm alive forevermore. And everything that you could possibly be afraid of pales in comparison to me. One of my favorite books um, that I've ever read is The Lord of the Rings. I'm going to leave you with a quote and kind of tie this in and talk about it. And if you're not a Lord of the Rings fan, it won't make as much sense to you. I'll try to describe it. But if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, you're like, oh, my goodness, awesome. Um, there was a hobbit heard of a hobbit, right? There's a hobbit, and his name is Sam. And it's not in the movie. You won't see this scene in the movie. You'll only read it in the book, because I cut it out in time, whatever, right? But, but long story, in the beginning, Gandalf is a wizard. Gandalf and Frodo and Sam, they're friends, and they get separated in the first book, because Gandalf falls into, uh, a, into the giant pit, uh, into the center of the earth with a demon. So Gandalf 
dies in the first book. They go through the, the rest of the first book, second book, third book. Sam and Frodo are by themselves. And they go on this thing. They destroy the ring of power. It's, it's all spiritual stuff. But they destroy this ring of power, and they're stuck on a volcano, and they, they, they think that they're going to die. As a matter of fact, they're pretty sure they're, they're going to die. They said they're going to die. And so they think they're going to die. They get rescued. And at the end of the book, you find that they're in this place called Rivendell. But they're in this place... They're brought back to this place of safety. What they didn't realize was that Gandalf didn't die. So the whole book, they think he's dead. And they find out that he didn't actually die. He's come back, really, from the dead. Long story. But here's this quote. Sam looks up when he kind of comes to. The last thing he knew, he was on the side of a mountain that was exploding. And now he comes to, and he's a place of safety. And the first person he sees is Gandalf. And he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. And now in the realization of that, listen to what he says. Is everything sad going to come untrue? He doesn't say, is everything sad over with? He says, is everything sad about to come untrue? Gandalf just looks at him and says, a great shadow has departed And then he laughed, and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as Sam listened, he thought the thought came to him that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment, for days upon days without count. Now, I want to tell you something. That there is a lot of that. There is a lot of sadness in this world. There's a lot of times that things are great and they capture you and it's like, pay attention to this, pay attention to this, pay attention to this. But there's also a lot of junk that goes on. But if we will turn and we will look, we will see Jesus saying, hey, I'm the guy who went through everything. I'm the one who, I was dead and now I'm alive. And I'm telling you that if we looked at Jesus and we said, Jesus, I, I thought you were dead. Then again, I thought I was dead. Is everything sad about to come untrue? Jesus would say yes. Everything sad is about to come untrue because this life, oh, it's really short. And the rest of it, he says, I am the beginning and the end. I know all of this stuff and everything sad will come untrue when we are occupied solely by the one who loves us. Hmm. Let's pray. Father, I'm going to pray first, and then I want, to, I want us to pray. So I want to pray first. Father, I'm just asking that you would open up our hearts and open up our eyes to see you for who you really are, the greatness of you and the greatness of your love and the greatness of the victory that you have won. And I would be remiss if I did not right now offer to anyone here listening to me that if you are here today, and, and you have not known Jesus like this, or you have, and for some reason you've drifted away and allowed this world to, uh, to occupy you without him, and you need to come back to him. If you need to, to surrender your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ right now, or if you need to recommit your life to him right now, we're going to pray. And I'm going to ask that if you're here and you'd like to reaffirm your faith in Christ that you'd pray with me. But if you're here specifically and you do not know Jesus and this needs to be the first time, I'm going to pray and you pray along with me. It's not to me, it's to God. So if this is you, 
Let's pray. Say, Dear God, you know that I am a sinner and that I can't get myself out of it. But I believe that Jesus Christ is your son, that he died on the cross in my place. I believe Jesus rose from the dead to offer me a new life and to offer me innocence. Please forgive me and come into my life. All that I am, all I ever will be, I surrender it to you right now. In Jesus' name, amen. 